Hi, everyone. I'm Bolton. And I'm Grace. And welcome to Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. And this is episode one. We are going to be recapping the movie that is based on a true crime, and we're going to be weaving in information and facts that we researched about the actual crime and what happened, comparing how the movie's depicting it to what actually went down. Obviously, there's probably going to be some spoilers, but these are true crime stories. The endings are already out there, so we don't really feel that yeah. bad about that. We went to college together. We actually both ended up going to law school and became lawyers, hated it. And now we don't do that anymore. But we love true crime. So we kind of wanted to just kind of find something fun to do. And the last thing with this podcast is if you're not super into watching the movies, you don't really have to. You can. And it makes for good commentary on them. But I know at least for me, sometimes they can get kind of heavy. And I just want to know the story with a little bit of a lighter conversation. And that's what this is supposed to be. So you don't have to watch them if you just need something to listen to while you're at work. That's totally fine. And today, the first movie that we are going to watch is what, Grace? Bernie. Bernie. He was the nicest guy in town. He was about the most popular man in Carthage. Real people, person. Just made you feel real good about yourself. It's like he cast a spell over the entire area. Room service. And she was just a mean old widow. She used to tear up my toys. She pulled the heads off my dolls. Well, there's some goodness in there, too. Who says opposites don't attract? She doesn't have anyone. She's a very lonely person. She needs someone. Uh, you sure about that? From the director of School of Rock and Dazed and Confused. It was widely assumed that Bernie was accompanying her places. Oh, yeah. Bernie took her everywhere. They went to Russia, Acapulco, New York City. They went to Europe. Always first class. He bought jet skis, nine cars. This spring, somewhere along the way, it was just Bernie. He was her servant. She was demanding. You should have been here hours ago. Condescending. All I want is for you to be a man for once in your life. Even conniving. I know you hate me! No! I don't know how the guy stood it. A woman like that with a bad heart? He should have just shoved the pillow right over her face. There are people in town, honey, that would have shot her for $5. Everybody's describing Bernie T. as an angel. The nicest fellow I've ever met. He didn't do it. He's an angel, all right. An angel of death. <laughs> that dog don't hunt. Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, Matthew McConaughey. Wheel of misfortune. If your number comes up, Danny Buck's coming to get you first. Bernie. In the freezer? Yeah. All in one piece or chopped up? One piece. Frozen like a popsicle. So just a little overview about the movie itself. It's from 2011. It is starring Jack Black, Matthew McConaughey, and Shirley MacLaine. It's directed by Richard Linklater. It's also written by uh, Richard Linklater and Skip Hollinsworth. And Skip Hollinsworth actually originally wrote a magazine article in January of 1998 called Midnight in the Garden of East Texas. It was published in Texas Monthly, and it was about this case. And his article is the basis of the script that was made for this movie. 
So when we were making this, we watched the movie, we take notes on it so we can recap it and kind of tell you what's going on in the movie. But we also do some outside research. Main thing I we used was this te- Texas Monthly article, Midnight in the Garden of East Texas. And there are some other sources. We are going to put those sources on our website and our show notes so you can know what they are. There's also a 48 Hours on this, which I'm going to talk heavily about, called mm-hmm. The Mortician, The Murder, and The Movie. It was first released on October 1st, 2016. It's got a lot of updates in there, too. Okay, some background on the movie, just the making and production and stuff like that. This movie is going to mix documentary kind of conventions with fictional elements and dramatized scenes. So basically, there are these talking head interviews with what are supposed to be Carthage townspeople. And then you see the drama drama going on between Bernie and Marjorie Nugent, like you would in any other movie. Basically, it is all scripted, but a lot of what these people say came from Hollinsworth's article where he took their quotes from them. And what was even more genius is that they had some of the townspeople play themselves and quote themselves from what they said. So wild. And it's a dark comedy, so there are funny parts to it. And it's, they are not, they're not making fun of a victim, but what they are doing is they're kind of just making fun of the quirks of a small town in Texas. Mm -hmm. And it works perfectly. Now, Marjorie Nugent's family says it is not true to what actually happened, but I have a lot of things to say about that later. Yeah, yeah. The 48 hours just, like... Oh, my gosh. ...left me with more questions about them, but we'll get we'll get to that. I actually... Okay, I have a theory. I have a theory about this whole thing, what really went down, but I'll, I'm mm-hmm. going to save it till the end because it's... Some people are going to be like, that's a lot, but I kind of think... I think I'm right. I don't know. I don't know if I'm right. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. The last thing that's probably interesting about this movie is this movie is the reason that Bernie, after the fact was able to get a resentencing hearing, and he was released from prison. That's amazing for, simply for the fact, like, Serial didn't even do that with Adnan Syed, who is one billion percent innocent. So that's a crazy twist that came from this. Because, spoiler, he did it, but... <laughs> yeah, he did do it, but I, I don't know, man. circumstances we'll get into, but yeah. Well, that's the thing. Okay, that's the thing about all these movies. This is a good example of how... When people commit crimes and how the justice system wants to deal with them, it is a lot more complicated than the justice system allows for it to be handled. Yeah. It's just, I mean, sometimes you have victims that suck. Sometimes you have defendants <laughs> that are wonderful. And sometimes, like, the the punishment ranges that you get, just, it's like, I don't think that fits. It just doesn't work. Right. And also, Grace and I both worked in criminal law, so... God, at least. Yeah, I did find that interesting with, like, the gang. They have a gang unit here, and it's, like, sometimes the victim is a gang member who they would have been prosecuting last week, but now they're, like, trying to portray them as this, like, they are the oh, victim. Yeah. Is how, so it's, like, so complicated. Yeah, just... that happens all the time. And this this is this is not like that. You're going to see very quickly Bernie's right. not a gang member. But you do, you see it yeah. all the time, and it's so <laughs> difficult to explain to people Like, it's just not that simple. (laughs) But anyway, enough ranting. Let's get into the movie. So we start off in this movie, and we hear someone introducing Bernie. I'm very honored to introduce our guest lecturer today. He graduated from here about 15 years ago. He's gone on to a fabulous career. 
And we don't know what he's introducing him for, but what we do know is, like, he really respects this guy as he is doing this. Then we also get a uh, screen that tells us, it's on-screen text, it says, what you're fixing to see is a true story. I love that, because it sets you up for, it's a dark comedy, like, and it's wild that it's a true story, like, it's very true, because it's very based on that article by Skip Hollinsworth, but it's like, the fact that life can be a dark comedy is just, like, excellent. Yeah, that was one thing, the, uh, I think the DA and the uh, granddaughters of Marjorie Nugent were like, this is not funny. It was like, guys, <laughs> I understand this was tragic, but you cannot tell me. Like, tra- yeah. comedy comes out of tragedy. Like, horrible shit happens. Yeah. But anyway, so I also love to they say fixing to. Apparently, that's not a thing. Do you say that? I say that all the time, but some people, like, don't realize that is English. I don't say fixing to, no, but... <laughs> Grace thinks I have but an accent, and I don't have one. Bolton has a Bolton has a Texas accent, and we will continue to discuss it throughout this podcast. Okay, so we get this grandiose opening of Bernie, and then here he is standing in front of us. And what is he standing in front of as they start zooming out? It is a mortuary class, and there is a dead body, a cadaver, laying right in front of him. And also, I just realized that body is an actor. He is credited. His name is Stephen Kerr. So good job, had, Steven. I know, like, had to lay there the whole time. I love this opening because I think it's the perfect situ- weird situation. He's so respected. This is clearly a big deal. He's doing this great thing. And then you have a body in front of you. It is so unusual and so strange. And it sets up how, like, everything in this thing is so strange. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow he is so beloved by these people in this town. Yeah. And he's so comfortable with corpses, which is a great way to start any true crime. I exactly. Feel. Actually, he will. St- we'll talk about like how he grew up and how he randomly got into this. But yeah, he yeah. got he got into it, and it was like his life's work, and he was very good at it. Mm-hmm. And I also love how everything Bernie says is like this perfect line between creepy and genuine. Mm-hmm. At one point, he's like saying, "Make sure that you close. Uh, make sure the eyes are closed on the body because they just want to stay open because they just want to keep looking at this world." The eyes are often a minor problem because they usually want to stay open. It's almost like they want one last look at this miraculous world, but with some super glue. Little devil, do you? And it's no more peeking. Yeah, and I wrote down. He says, "Do not overcosmetize." Most of those who service the deceased apply far too much blush. Just a note to always remember, too much color does not make one look more alive. Which I loved. I felt, um, I've only seen one corpse who was my grandma, and it was quite the glamour makeup situation, which was not my grandma in life at all. So that line really got me there. <laughs> too much blush. I've seen, th- I don't know why we're talking about this. I've seen, seen three dead bodies. One of them, the the face was painted on. It was horrible. One of them looked mm-hmm. pretty good, and one of them, it was, it was fine for the situation though. It was, and it was like a bad accident thing. But anyways, gotcha. moving right along. <laughs> then we finish up this wonderful, I guess. What what would you call this? this? Is not embalming. This is just dressing the guy. We finish up with the dead guy, and we yeah. get some on screen text with some great gospel music, and it just says, Who is Bernie? And there's Jack Black driving a car, singing gospel at the top of his lungs. Love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. 
And we start to kind of hear from the people in Carthage. We start to get kind of the mockumentary aspect and breaking the fourth wall of this movie. And they these people are telling us all these different things about Bernie. And the bottom line, I put in my notes, is like these people fucking loved Bernie. They loved him. His personality was just like magnetic. Okay, so people were just drawn to him all the time. And because of that, that personality, for too long, he was about the most popular man in Carthage. And it's really interesting with the people who decide to make the movie, how they are also drawn to Bernie. They're not from this small town. Yeah, they are drawn to him. And for a while, I couldn't figure out how I felt about it. I think I honestly think you have to be be with him in person to kind of see it and see what mm-hmm. what it is. But God, the forty eight hours, like I was getting kind of into it. I think I was I was like drinking the Kool Aid, so to speak. <laughs> so they go from talking a lot about Bernie, and then we get into the East Texas town of Carthage. And the best way to describe how these people think of Carthage and how all small towns tend to think of themselves is in a scene with a guy where he's got a map in front of him, and it's a map of Texas. Up north, you got some Dallas snobs with their Mercedes. And then you got the Houston, the carcinogenic coast is what I call it, all the way up to Louisiana. Then down south, San Antonio, uh, that's where the Tex meets the Mex, like the food. And then in central Texas, you got the... People's Republic of Austin with a bunch of hairy-legged women and liberal fruitcakes. I just want to point out that mm-hmm. when I was in law school, I, I'm from Dallas. I moved to Fort Worth, which is just west. And I didn't realize it till I was there, but everybody was like, there was just this like rivalry of like everyone in Fort Worth hates Dallas, and they assume everyone in Dallas hates Fort Worth. And I was like, wait, is that a thing? Apparently, every other part of Texas hates Dallas, so sorry, guys. Anyway. Carthage, this is where the South begins. This is life behind the pine curtain. And, and, and truth be known, it's a good place. Beneath the pine curtain is Carthage. They love to say that Carthage is like no other town in Texas, but I'm here to tell you that every small town in Texas likes to say that there is no other town in Texas like them. But they did make it into the best small towns in America, volume two. Carthage has such a good reputation that it's listed in the best small towns in America, volume two, as the best small town in Texas. That's right. Page 157. And I loved in the article, they actually talk about how like, and I feel like this happened a lot because I worked in a small town. I live, I didn't live in it, but I worked in it and drive down. And the way that town kind of got started was the same as Carthage. It was a big oil town. And mm-hmm. now as oil's kind of subsided, um, they're trying to build their stuff up with other things. And one of their famous pe- names, like to mind that they mentioned in the article, is like a backup singer for Reba McIntyre. <laughs> So a part of this, too, is just that when you have a small town that was an oil town with all these men making all this money, all the men are dying off and all the little old ladies are left. And that's kind of how Mm -hmm. Bernie gets into this town, how he ends up coming over there. Basically, this local funeral home, they needed an extra set of hands. And so in 1985, they hired Bernie over the phone from a phone interview. He was 27 years old and he moves... I think at the time he was living in Louisiana, and he moves over to Carthage. 
And one thing that we should probably point out now and just remember is people in Carthage, they're conservative politically and socially, which mm-hmm. made it hard to imagine that people were going to like Bernie. You'll you see quickly in the movie why. He's very effeminate. Mm-hmm. He's definitely gay, but it's never said at this point. It's not really discussed at the time. But people loved him, and you start seeing that more and more and more. Mm-hmm. So they hire Bernie, and he starts running the funerals and running the funeral home, and he is fantastic at it. And Jack Black is the best singer. I just want him to sing at my funeral. And I realized as I was watching the movie, the way the movie starts is, you know, they have the people talking about how much they love Bernie. And then we get into Bernie working at these funerals, but you don't see how involved in the town Bernie is at this point. And like he was heavily involved in this town. He would sub in for the pastor at church when that, for whatever reason, he wasn't available. And like there is a quote from someone saying like he was better than the paid pastor. And I thought at first like they weren't doing that part justice, but I think the reason they wait to do that is because he literally made friends with all of these old people and all the people in the town, really, but specifically the old people and specifically the little old ladies because he mm-hmm. was working all the funerals and he was working them like fabulously. Oh, honey, he was a magician. He made all of us just look beautiful. I mean, he could make your wrinkles just all go away. And he would, if you had an overbite, he'd fix that so it wouldn't be so sticky outy. And he would um, take a bouquet of small white roses and put it in your hand. I mean, he just made everybody look so beautiful. Except too bad you were dead. So then we see that Bernie is not only good at you know, holding the funerals, he is good at selling the funeral packages. Mm-hmm. I don't, this is kind of the part where I originally was starting to question, is this guy like just a genuinely nice person or is he kind of a psychopath? Because this, you could easily equate this to like a used car salesman. Yeah. And for an extra $150, you could have a dove fly out into the sky at your funeral, <laughs> by the way. So Bernie's doing fabulous. He's working the funerals. He's working the little old ladies. And in 1990, he meets Mrs. Nugent, Marjorie Nugent. And the way he meets her is that her husband dies. She's 74 at the time. Bernie is like in his early 30s. He was 27 when he moved there, so I can't do math. But anyway, he's he is significantly younger than her. I actually learned that Marjorie Nugent and her husband had just moved to Carthage in 1989 from Midland. The rest of the family is living in Midland. Specifically, like, her son and three granddaughters are over there. I just want to point out for people that don't know, because in the 48 hours, they try to make it seem like they're with her all the time. Midland is over in West Texas, if you remember the map, where the big ranches are, and it is a bitch to get over there from anywhere else. It is an hours-long drive, especially from East Texas. So they are not around. So basically, she's kind of just alone once he dies, and she's not super... She's not friendly. Like, the way the way the townspeople say it, they, they do not like her. She was just a mean, old, hateful bitch. <laughs> hey, there's just no other way to put it. She wasn't friendly. She, she really wasn't. And she probably, there are people in town, honey, that would have shot her for $5, you know. Now, in the 48 Hours episode, the granddaughters take offense to this. And I... I will give them that. I don't think, I don't think she was as mean as people portray her. I think she just wasn't social. 
And yeah. she just didn't want to go to church. And she didn't want to give her money to the church. And I don't blame her for that. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to either. But mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said about that people, just, they did not really like her. I think mm-hmm. she was cold. Also, these granddaughters are conveniently forgetting that they did sue their grandma before yeah. all this happened. Everybody in town knew that Mr. and Mrs. Nugent weren't exactly friends with their son, Dwayne Jr., and his family. He was a doctor out in Midland, almost never came to visit. One of his daughters had actually sued her grandparents trying to get at the money in that trust. And after that, Marjorie was so mad that she never spoke to any of them again. And they also didn't visit often for their visits were like years apart when they were like, oh, well, the last time we were there in 91. And it's like, whoa, yes. Then the next visit was 94. Like if you were really close to your sweet old grandmother, I think you would maybe see her a little bit more than that. Yes, exactly. But so Bernie works Mr. Nugent's funeral. Yes. So he works Mr. Nugent's funeral. And At first, I thought this was something he just did with Marjorie, but he did this with all the little old ladies. Afterwards, he would go to their house and check on them. He'd bring them, like, a little gift and see how they were doing. And he did this with several of these little ladies. Mm -hmm. And um, he did it a couple times with Miss Nugent. And I think what he says in uh, the 48 Hours, because they do talk to Bernie, is he, he just straight up says, I felt sorry for her. She looked very lonely. And I, I can see that. She doesn't mm-hmm. talk to her family. She's alone. She does not want to go to fucking church. She needed a friend. And he was just there to do that for her. I don't think he had any other motives at the time in doing that. He did this with everybody. And he, this, I, I realized I read in the article, he, I mean, he'd go out of his way for these ladies as well. There was another woman before Mrs. Nugent where he actually drove her. I don't know if he drove her or flew her, but he took her to Arkansas to help with some pain in her feet. So this is not the first time that he's getting like heavily involved in someone's life. But in the movie, we see him come up one time. She kind of shuts him out. He comes up again and she lets him into the house. And they kind of start to open up to each other. And she Mm -hmm. asks him, how are you? Like, I don't understand how you could be touching these dead bodies all day. And Bernie, I think... This is at a time where I think he opened up to her, too. Like, I don't think this was quite as much as a one-way street. I think Mm -hmm. he got something out of it, too. Because he talks about why he got into mortician work. Mm -hmm. But it has heavily to do with his childhood. So they don't really mention this in the movie. But uh, Bernie was born in Tyler. That's about a 45-minute drive from Carthage. When he was very young, he was in a car accident. His dad was driving the car. His mother was in there, too. And it killed his mother. Mm -hmm. And he says in the 48 Hours, he didn't think his dad ever forgave himself. He calls his parents mother and daddy, which is such a small town thing. My father, my grown man father, calls his mom mother and his dad daddy. And I will never get over it. It is so strange. But it is is a thing. Everyone everyone does it. I just, yeah. Anyway. And so does Bernie. Yeah, that's a thing. It, it is a weird thing. So basically, I think this this drives his dad to drink pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. He does eventually remarry. And this, st- I believe it's the stepmom's brother starts sexually assaulting him when he's a child. I think he was about 12 years old. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I just had that it was his uncle and he was 12 years old. Yeah. It, that was horrible. So we... We don't know this at this point, but this horrible trauma is happening to them. His dad is an alcoholic. He's lost his mother. And they don't have a lot of money either. Mm-hmm. So in order to help with that, he started working at a local funeral home. 
And he really just, like, bought into, like, he really enjoyed the the aspect of working in a funeral home that helped people. Like, the fact that you helped them through this extremely tragic time. And it, like, I think, I think it was the giving aspect that really brought mm-hmm. him to life. And he kept doing it. And he went to mortuary school at McNeese State. He graduated. And that's what he did from then on. And that's why he did it. And he explains this part in the movie. That's why he works as a mortician. Mm-hmm. Or a funeral director. I'm saying the wrong term. I'm sorry. And it moves Marjorie and it moves you as you're listening to it. He was just yeah, a good his guy. Yeah, dad ends up dying when he's 15, I think, too. So he really was like, it was just him and his sister and he's working and trying to support them. Yeah. And I think that he got so ridiculously into all the little aspects of being a funeral director because it made people feel better. Now, that being said, I think that this all was kind of Bernie's way of coping with everything that happened to him in his past. I think to a certain extent, mm-hmm. he started kind of, he started kind of becoming impulsive. He was, he had a shopping issue and it's actually, they have a man mentioning this in the movie, but it's actually his sister in the article says, well, Bernie had a problem with money. He was generous. Some folks say overly generous. What he was was a bioholic. And, uh, hell, he'd walk into a store to sing something he liked. He'd buy the store out of every goddamn item he wanted and then give the shit away. And that's crazy. Like, it, that all was kind of bringing him this joy slash a little mm-hmm. bit of maybe a high. I don't know. He definitely had an issue with controlling and managing his money. Yeah. And, you know, once he meets Marjorie, he's making, at the time, his sa- annual salary was $18,000 a year. Marjorie was getting 200000 to 300000 dollars a year in oil and gas royalties that sounds so all of these numbers sound so different than now but mm-hmm. basically she was making a lot more money than him and she was worth a lot more and so we have this nice scene where bernie and marge you know they get they kind of come to this understanding about each other and then of course as this movie should like the right on point he has this weird freaking quote he says to her And someday, if I'm lucky, many, many years from now, I will give you such a beautiful funeral with all the roses in East Texas. I know it'll be the event of the season in Carthage. And it's so freaking weird. But at the same time, you can't help but be like, that's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing Bernie did, he started being a friend to Marjorie, but he also kind of I think got her out of the house more. He he made her he wanted her to have fun and having fun would be getting out of your freaking house. And mm-hmm. one thing they say is that he started making her go to church more. I think this is just to show that the first step was going to church because Marge looks like she wants to shoot everyone in the face while she's in this Bible study where they are arguing about whether or not the wine Jesus made had alcohol in it. Well, I know the Bible says Jesus turned water into wine, but It didn't say liquor store wine. It had to have been non-alcoholic wine because it didn't have time to ferment. If Jesus could walk on the water, he could make any kind of wine he wanted to, fermented or not. And she is like, oh, my God. But I think the kind of turning point in that is that he gets her going to church. Suddenly the church needs a fundraiser. Suddenly they can do these other things. It just kind of snowballs into different activities they can do and that he can take her to. And that's mm-hmm. how they got involved in it all. Yeah. 
And in the movie, they have a scene with Marjorie talking to her stockbroker, Lloyd, who will be our unlikely hero, but we'll get to that later. And Lloyd was real, which I found out from the article. So that was exciting. Um, But so she says to Lloyd in the movie that she can't think of anyone who's been that nice to her in 50 years, talking about Bernie being nice to her and kind of explaining why that relationship's happening. And nothing in the 48 hours really disputes that. Like, they don't have from family or friends or anyone else who's saying like, oh, well, I was her friend and we hung out a lot or like, I'd go and see her. Like she was alone and Bernie was nice to her and spent time with her. Yeah, like they didn't. And the thing in the 48 hours is, so these three granddaughters are talking about how she was this kind, wonderful woman. Okay. And they're like, she just had all these great stories. And I wanted to be like, give us a story. Tell us a story. Like I can tell you stories. I go, I, granted, I don't see my grandparents every day, but I go to dinner with them once a month and I get a new story from them every time. I can tell you a story. <laughs> like there was just, it was very like on the surface. It was on the surface memories. Describing an old person. Like, yeah. you'd be like, oh, well, you know, old people, they're great. They've got stories. Yeah. It was not, it was not like what, what he could talk about her. I don't know why, but at this point, for some reason, I think this must mean what the purpose of this scene was, was to show that Bernie... Uh, through having Marjorie get more involved in the town, he was able to contribute more to the town. So they have this freaking scene where it's like a, it's it's a what we I we called a shattered dreams scenario, where before he would go to pr- prom, the school would pay for them to like bring two wrecked cars, douse them in costume blood, and like it was supposed to be people from like theater, but it was always the hot popular kids. They would make them look dead on the cars and be like, "These kids have died from drunk driving," and I hated it. Like my even my mom, my mom's a nurse, and she was like, "This is ridiculous. Just bring a doctor in with a bunch of real photos and not this like crap." I, I couldn't stay. I was like, <laughs> "Your mom's like, just show the corpses." <laughs> I know she did though. She came for like a career day and she brought so many pictures of people like chopped up but people loved it she was very popular anyway i don't know why this is in there but bernie is performing in this shattered dreams that's what they call it death scene at the high school Mm -hmm. and it there's no mention of it again there's no mention as to why it's there and then we move right along so we get uh, another like on-screen text and it is asking was their relationship romantic Mm -hmm. it took me so many watches of the movie and so many like reads of all the stuff before i kind of came to my answer i think i'm interested because what's your answer i think the 48 hours kind of gets it down i don't think it was romantic i think it was known we're gonna get to this more i think it was known but not talked about that bernie was gay Mm -hmm. i think that She was very lonely. He wanted to be there for her. I think it became a mutual enjoyment for both of them, but I think more in like a the grandson I don't have type of way. I do not think. Also, she's old. She's 80. I correct me if I'm wrong. I just don't think an 80-year-old is like has is sexual or wanting to have sex or attracted to someone at that point. Oh, Bolton. 80-year-olds do. Are you really like STDs bouncing around these assisted livings? Is this real, though? (laughs) It's real. It's real. Hopefully we have some old people listeners who will write in and tell us all about their spicy sex. Okay, well. Just kidding. No details, please. But (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to leave. Well, actually, uh, no, I don't want details. I just kind of, I just really want to know. Like, are you really that sexually active at 80? Um, I think some are. 
I think some are, but I I agree with you that I don't think it was romantic. And it really pissed me off in the 48 hours when the granddaughters were like, we think that he conned her and she was in love with Bernie and she thought that he loved her. And like, they thought it was romantic because all the pictures of their grandfather were gone and there were pictures of Bernie all over the house. And I'm like, there's pictures of Bernie all over the house because that's who her friend is. That's who she's going places with. Like they travel together. Um, I think it's very much just like a friendship, possibly like you said, like a grandson she didn't have or even son she didn't have because she didn't really get along with her son after a while. Yes. Thank you. We're on the same. Yeah. I just, oh my gosh. I'm, 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 I'm like holding back what I say, want to say about the sister or not the sisters, the granddaughters who are sisters because it's all going to come out in the end and I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> I'm just trying to go in order of my goddamn notes. Anyway. Yes. But it's around this time where we're asked, we're questioning like the romantic aspect of it, where we see for the first time Matthew McConaughey playing the district attorney, Danny Buck Davidson. It's a flattering portrayal. It is. The thing, okay, here's the thing. I was, I'm going to admit, I was too hard on Danny Buck Davidson when I watched this time the first through. He ends up being an okay guy, but also he's a little bit always looking out for himself. And I have, like, he, yeah. he pulls a stunt. He's an that, elected, he's an elected DA. Yeah, he's an elected DA, and he's bit. been an elected DA. He is still the DA at this place. So this is in what, let's say at the most, this is like 1995. He is still the DA now. He has been there that long, which is just, mm-hmm. that's, that's too long, guys. It's, I just, <laughs> uh, anyway... It's too long. Yeah. But he taught, he's kind of getting in on the rumors, as is everybody else. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of the first person in the movie to really, like, hit hard on, like, basically suggesting that their relationship was romantic because she was giving him money. Word was that within a week after the funeral, Mrs. Nugent had given Bernie Mr. Nugent's $12,000 Rolex watch. Hell, for that kind of money, I bet he did kiss her. So the rumor mill kind of goes around, but I think, honestly, I I don't think people cared. I don't, like, in the same way that they knew that Bernie was gay, whether or not it was romantic, I don't think they cared. They were yeah. just like, well, he's dealing with this woman. We don't like to deal with her, but he's still our friend, so why the heck does it matter, you know? And it just, like, added another aspect to the gossip around town if it's funny to think of someone who's so mean to everybody being in this romantic relationship with a younger man and then being able to gossip about that. Um, but I, th- and I had a couple towns, people kind of say they think it might be romantic, but for the most part, it seems like everyone didn't really think it was romantic. Yeah, that's true. And now we get on to the, the one question there is on-screen text that asks us, was Bernie gay? Yeah, I heard that he was gay, but he was such a good Christian man. Everybody thought, you know, how could that be? That dog don't hunt. Nah. And this is hilarious because this is how freaking old people in these small towns act. I know this because I am related to some of them. Our Lord and Savior wore sandals, and he never married. And he had 12 disciples. And I don't think any of them ever married. And the Apostle Paul, he was a lifelong bachelor and you never heard anybody in the new testament say that there was a bunch of queers (laughs) no 
they, like, God forbid you be gay. Like, they're going to go around the world and back to, like, give you a reason why. No, they're not gay. They're just celibate. Jesus wore sandals and he wasn't gay. None of the apostles were queers. Good God. Like, God forbid. Like, oh, my God. It's, like, it's so, it's funny, but it's sad. It's sad that someone would have to, like, hide themselves for who they are. And we should say now that at the time, Bernie was not out, but he is now an out gay man. He says this in the 48 hours. Mm -hmm. But I will say, as much as it's so frustrating to see the townspeople really, like you said, do all this mental math to say he's not gay, um, kind of make excuses for, because like, God forbid, if he was gay, that after the murder... The town refuses to abandon Bernie. This is from the article, um, the Skip Hollinsworth article. After, so the sheriff announces on the morning radio talk show that they've confiscated like 50 videotapes from Bernie's house, which yes. some of them show men involved in illicit acts. And the town, they still love Bernie. They don't care. And then later, I guess there's another, the sheriff comes out again and says that uh, he's seen people in the town on some of those illicit videotapes. And then this is what really cracked me up. Apparently some guy shows up to a high school football game in Carthage wearing a t-shirt that reads, I'm the only one in Carthage, not on the videotapes. <laughs> That's hilarious. That actually warms my heart. Oh, how much they love. This movie is fantastic. But the story itself, just like, I've never seen so much love by a collective group for one person. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, everything's going great with Marjorie and Bernie. And in 1991... She actually orders officials at the First National Bank to accept checks that are from her account that are signed by Bernie so that she could handle some of her bills. Her stockbroker, who we mentioned earlier, Lloyd, Lloyd. he's kind of not sure about this, but she gets pissed at him and she, like, threatens to fire him. And they show this in the movie, too. They show him handling stuff on her accounts. But basically, Mm -hmm. he's, like, he now has a pretty big part in her finances where he's, like, signing stuff and things like that. And from the 48 hours, I found out that it was 91 also when she changes her will. Is that what... Okay, that's what I was going to say, but I wasn't sure if I was right. Then we find out in 1991, she changes her will and she takes everything away from her children and her grandchildren and she is giving it all to Bernie. Yeah, everything. Everything's going to Bernie. And she's she has like her Carthage estate. She has all these gas royalties. She has all these stocks. She's very well off. And people kind of question like the sanity of these types of relationships. Like this is how these elder abuse cases start when someone like weasels their way in and then gets from the will. But she points out like, okay, my son's a doctor. He takes care of his children. None of them ever come and see me. So I'm going to leave all my shit to the one person who hangs out with me. Like, it's not unreasonable. Yeah. And she told the cousin who lived in Carthage, these people didn't appreciate her. We're going to get into now what I think happened mm-hmm. in terms of the sisters. This is 1991 when she changes her will. They claim that they go see her in 93 and everything is fine. Then 94, so for how much they say they have this great relationship with her, they're going to see her once a year. And they were not talking to her in between this because if they go in 93, everything's fine. They show up in 94 and she wants nothing to do with them. That's what they say. I think that that, this 94 coming to see her, maybe even 93, I think that's when they found out about the will. I think they were pushing to go see her because they found out she changed the will. And 93 is also when we learn that she had asked Bernie to either go part-time or completely quit working from the funeral home and come work for her. Just basically come be her caretaker, caretaker. And he does it. 
But when he does it, I will say that Don Lipsy, who is the guy that he worked for at the funeral, he kind of tells him, like, you know, you need to be careful. Just be sure you know what you're doing. I mean, do you really want to be caring for her for the rest of her life? Because that's going to be a long time and she can be difficult. And he says to them, no, I think it's fine. I think it's interesting Mm -hmm. how he saw such good in her and they really seemed to be a little bit worried about it. They didn't know, of course, that the will had been changed. So some people kind of suggest that maybe he felt he owed her this. He had to do this. Like, if he said no, then he wouldn't get the will. She'd change it again. Yeah. And we get some on-screen text that says, two years later. And we've already had a little scene just before this where Bernie forgets to bring her pills to her. And she gets pissed at him, like they're on a trip or something. And then we get the two years later... And now it, we see that Bernie has just turned into her kind of slave. She got rid of all her usual help, and it was just Bernie. He was her business manager, her traveling companion, her servant. He yeah. still has some perks. He's flying an airplane around, like, having a good time. But she wants him with her 24-7 and freaks out if he is not there. I told you I was okay, you told me. What good does that do me? Things change, and I needed you here. And... Because you never leave your cell phone on all the time. This is a pager. You're going to wear it on your person at all times, correct? Correct. Go get me a dress. And we see him, like, clipping her toenails and driving her places, washing her pantyhose in the sink, all these menial tasks. And eventually she's calling him all the time. She gets him a pager because he's not answering his phone. And he feels like if she calls, he has to pick up or he has to go see her. And it's around this time... Bernie's lawyer, who we're seeing for the first time. His name is Scrappy. Crap, what is his name? Scrappy Holmes. He says that he also thinks this is kind of a point where her jealousy is getting a little out of control. However, the little old lady's jealousy of her and Bernie is also a little out of control. So basically everyone Mm -hmm. is upset that Bernie is spending so much time with Marge. But Mm -hmm. she's starting to get a little bit like, she's getting very needy at this point. Bernie does tell his sister, they don't show this in the movie, but he does tell his sister, I think she's starting to have a little bit of dementia. And Mm -hmm. I think that that might be true. I think she was starting to forget things or she was starting to kind of get that anxiety panic of like, he's not going to come back, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. And it makes sense that she would want him around all the time and he can't be there all the goddamn time. Like he's Mm -hmm. got his own life. Yeah, we should say he still, he lived in her house than her. He never actually, like, lived with her, it didn't seem like. No, he didn't. Like, so, except when they were going on trips. Right. When he quit his job at the funeral home, he bought a house instead of living. He was living in an apartment before, and then he bought a house. He never mm-hmm. lived with Marjorie, but he was there a lot. So we see this getting worse and worse. And another thing that Bernie mm-hmm. says, which is also in the movie, is why he thought that the dementia was maybe actually coming on is she fires her gardener and she says that he stole her lawnmower and she didn't he did not plant plants in the garden and the way it's explained is he did take the lawnmower but to get it fixed and the plants just hadn't bloomed yet it takes a while like she was mm-hmm. becoming irrational about things bernie tries to reason with her and this also happened he goes to her to explain this she will not be reasonable And he says, Marjorie, you're making it very hard to be your friend. I'm going to come back some other time. Go ahead, desert me. Just like everybody else. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go, go, go. You hate me. Marjorie, I am not going to take part in this argument. You know know I don't hate you, and that's fair. I know you hate me. No. 
and I think it's hard. He doesn't know for sure if that's dementia, but that's hard to deal with because it's hard. You're not dealing with reason at all. Mm -hmm. And as he's driving away, and apparently this happened several times, she would lock the gate so he couldn't drive out. Like he was just trapped Mm -hmm. there. I think this was building up for a while. And then the next thing that was kind of crazy that she had never made him do before is she gives him a gun and she is... Marjorie, I should really start using their names. Marjorie is making Bernie shoot armadillos in their garden to mm-hmm. to kill them so they're not getting at her plants. And in the movie, he is like, I don't want to do this. Come on, just pull the damn trigger. I don't think I can. It doesn't feel aimed right. Look, look, look. All I want is for you to shoot that armadillo that is digging up my garden, okay? I mean, is that too much for me to ask for you to be a man for once in your life? <laughs> In the movie, I think they portray it kind of as, like, he couldn't hurt a fly. He didn't want to do it. I think it was probably mm-hmm. more there were not armadillos or it was just, <laughs> that's not going to help the situation. Now we've got a bunch of dead rodents and disease-ridden rodents in the yard. It just was unreasonable. And in the movie, they have her say, like, is it too much for me to ask you to be a man for once in your life? We don't know if she actually said that to him, but based on what he said to his sisters, that she was very controlling and it wore him down. But yeah. he felt like he was her only friend and he had to stay. And it was a build-up um, and a build-up. Right. And then we get to the scene. We have Bernie. He is plucking the chin hairs off of Marjorie's chin <laughs> and dressing her. And they are getting ready to go to dinner, I believe. He asks her, do you want to come watch my dress rehearsal for something he was doing? She says no. And as they're walking out... They don't show Bernie pick up the gun. They show the gun and they show Bernie's face. And then you hear gunshots. You don't ever actually see the shooting, but he has shot her four times in the back and she has fallen to the ground in the garage. In reality, the first shot paralyzed her and she fell down. And then there were at least two where like the muzzle was pushed against her back. Like he walked up and pushed the gun into her and shot her. And it was actually interesting in the 48 hours that his like appeals attorney who's named Jody Cole, she cuts him off and she's like, no, you will not talk about the shooting. And right. you can tell he like wants to mm-hmm. because he's obviously a people pleaser. Like that's what Bernie does. He wants to make people happy. This interviewer wants to know about the shooting. And you kind of hear from her about like three times, like, no, don't talk about it. Nope, we're nope, yes. That. So this name is Jody Cole and we're going to talk about her more a little bit later. But yeah, she, they want him to recap what he said from before again and she tells mm-hmm. him no, which is Correct. Good job, yeah. Jody. <laughs> if a lawyer tells you to shut the fuck up, just stop talking, please. Thank you. Yeah, just do it. Okay. So he goes down and he is freaking the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And then I think pretty sure it's the next scene we get is him like, uh, is this the music man or something? I is- think this is the dress rehearsal that he was talking about going to. Yeah. yeah. He is at his dress rehearsal. Nothing is wrong. He is doing good. People are starting to kind of ask him, where's Marjorie? What's going on? But he says she's sick. It was easy for her to disappear. Nobody was looking for her. Not her son, not her two sisters. One of them lived here in Carthage. I don't think he's spoken in about 10 years. Only person looking for him was her stockbroker. He lied and said she was in a hospital under a fake name. And he told the sheriffs this because Lloyd was questioning what the hell was going on. I think Lloyd was the Kickstarter to all of this. I don't think anybody, the kids, Lloyd, anybody, would have done anything or noticed anything if it wasn't for the money. I don't think anybody cared about Marjorie. I think they cared about the money. Lloyd wanted to know why the heck he couldn't, she couldn't move. Whatever stockbrokers do, he couldn't do it because Marjorie wasn't there. So he wasn't Mm -hmm. getting paid. 
I think he brought it to the attention of the son that something was going on. And also, the son wasn't getting paid from the will from the husband. So he wasn't getting his money. If Bernie had just remembered to pay them, this might have never actually happened. Nobody would have asked questions. And then at some point, I guess he would have just said she died. We go on for a while with him doing different stuff. But he also, he starts using her money to make these lavish changes around the town. Now he really started being generous. He paid $5,000 for the Shreveport Orchestra to come over and play the Messiah. He bought a high-dollar harpsichord for the school. He paid for the choir to go to Russia. He helps get a new building for the church. He buys some people a house. He buys nine cars, not for himself. These are all for different people. He's still driving this, I can't remember the car he was driving. It was like a Lincoln. I think it's a Lincoln, yeah. yeah. That he is behind on his payments for. He bought businesses for people who like wanted to start their businesses or if they needed help. Or they were going out of business. He would buy it up so that they wouldn't go out of business. So basically the town is doing fantastic. People will occasionally ask, where is Marjorie? So after she's in the hospital, he says that she's in a nursing home in Temple. But what happens is the sheriff gets an anonymous call from a woman. So it's not Lloyd saying Mm -hmm. that someone needs to go over and check on Marjorie. So the sheriff goes over. He goes with the son and at least one of the granddaughters. Mm-hmm. They go into the house, and it's actually, in the movie, they show a police officer looking into the tub. And I wondered how that he was able to do this. Right. I was like, I don't think with just a wellness check he could be going through her freezer like that. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't in real life. It was the granddaughter that looked in the freezer. But that part in the 48 Hours pissed me off, too, because they kind of act like, oh, me and Dad were worried about her. But they were worried about her because the sheriff called them and was like, hey, have you checked on her at all? Because we got a concerned call and nobody's seen her. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I can say it at this point. I think that these sisters claim that they had this close relationship with their grandmother is complete bullshit. I do not think they did. I don't think they knew anything about her. I think they went and saw her maybe once a year for a holiday thing. They definitely sued her. And in the trial, Bernie's defense attorney mentions that, that they sued their grandma, and they hadn't really seen her since. I think that they went through this lawsuit before, they didn't talk to her again, they found out she changed her will, and they tried to go over and smooth things over, and it didn't work. I think Lloyd might have called one of the granddaughters, which caused this, and then they go over and are looking around. Mm-hmm. Also, am I not... The freezer is taped shut, and they everybody seems to find this unusual. That, that That is her reasoning for going to look in the freezer. It's a working freezer. It's on, but it's taped shut. Is that weird? I don't think that's weird. Like, what if you got a bunch of shit in it, and you're just trying to keep it closed? <laughs> I mean, if you, like, never want it to be opened, then you would tape it. I think it's weird to tape a freezer. Okay, well. Unless you're, like, trying to keep somebody out. Maybe like your kid I'm- won't stop opening it or something. <laughs> Or just like, I don't know, if you have a bunch of meat, like think about it, like you're not doing it under, but you're on the top and you're just doing it so it's, you just have something on it to keep it from opening. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? This is not a visual medium. You're making sense. But anyway. The granddaughter opens the freezer, right? That's what actually happens? Yeah, so what actually happens is granddaughter opens the freezer and they (laughs) see a bunch of frozen dinners and Marjorie sitting there. She's complete, she's together, she's not cut up or anything, but she is just chilling in the freezer no pun intended (laughs) they get the freezer out they send it to dallas to the medical examiner and it takes i think it it takes two days for it to thaw out before they can like actually examine the body Mm -hmm. in the movie matthew mcconaughey's character danny buck 
he sprints over to that crime scene as fast as he can. And in <laughs> real life, this doesn't happen. The DA does not go to the crime scene because then the DA becomes a witness. So that's just, it doesn't happen. Some places in minor crimes they might let, like a younger prosecutor come along, but I still think that's dumb because you're still making yourself a witness. Anyways, moving on. And the first person he wants to see is Bernie. Where is Bernie during this time? And this is true even in real life. He is talking to a bunch of Little League guys about, like, pursuing their dreams. And it's all about, you know, bettering yourself, not about winning. Like, he's being the best man of all time, doing the best things. They say that when they go over there, they say, we want to talk to you. And... He's a little nervous at first, but he breaks down pretty fast. And actually, Bernie was he was breaking my heart at this point. He's crying in the 48 hours. Just like, I was so relieved. I felt so... He felt like, that's real remorse. These mm-hmm. granddaughters seem to think he has no remorse. I don't buy that for a second. This man feels terrible for what he did. They take him. And this becomes a giant news story all over. Mm-hmm. The town completely rallies around him. They, yeah. They're 1,000% supporting him. They are 1,000% do not give a shit about Marjorie Nugent. It's actually like the townspeople's arguments that made me come back to, okay, I think this actually was an act of passion, which was his defense that he uses at the first trial. You got this sweet guy. You got Bernie, who's just the nicest fellow I've ever met, known him for a little while now. And then you got Mrs. Nugent, who is not nice not nice to a large degree, just evil. So you got this sweetness and you got this evil, and they're kind of battling each other. Uh, and you know that something at some point's got to give, something's got to break. And she was just more evil than he was nice, I guess, and he just exploded. They had go around to the townspeople who, to me, make a lot of sense. They're like, if he wanted to get away with it, he could have. He could have smothered her with a pillow, and people would have been like, oh, she was an old lady and died. Or on his planes, he could have dumped her in the Gulf of Mexico. Or even, I think we hear from the DA later that, like, if he had disposed of the body, it would have been hard for him to pin it on Bernie. But, I mean, they rally around him. Yeah. They He has a $1.7 million bond, and they post it for him. Mm-hmm. And then Danny Buck has to go back and raise the bond, saying, uh, filing additional charges of theft. The thing that makes me mad is the judge made this bond what it was. And it makes me angry. It made me angry when I was working. How prosecutors would just like, oh, no, they they, they made the bond. They've got con- bond conditions. Just let them out. Like, why are you fighting this? He's not going anywhere. Everyone in the town yeah. knows where he is. And he's clearly, like, the second they talk to him, he's remorseful and just being like, oh, my God, like, what have I done? He's mm-hmm. not going anywhere. Yeah. The whole country would know where he is. But they add more on there. I think he ends up staying in jail from there, but he's doing just fine because he is teaching people in jail how to cook. In the meantime, Bernie sits in the county jail where he's reportedly already become a popular inmate, leading a Bible study group and cooking meals for the staff. Now, we are going to line the bottom of the pie dish with cheese to provide a barrier between the liquid and the crust. Now, a lot of people use grated cheese, but I've found that if you cut it in little quarter-inch cubes, it does a better job of keeping the crust from getting soggy. Uh, And then in the movie, they show at church that the pastor's like gives a sermon about forgiveness and asks everyone to pray for Bernie. And in real life, the pastor really did that after the murder. His, he was giving copies of his sermon to reporters and it was titled when life doesn't make sense and saying like, no matter what the truth is, Bernie will need our prayers. 
Yes, that is true. And the DA was like up a creek without a paddle. Yeah. And people people came up to him and said, you don't hear people saying poor Marjorie. People are saying poor Bernie. One mm-hmm. lady said that if I'm on that jury, I'm going to acquit. People wanted to be on the jury because nobody's going to convict Bernie. No one's going to put him in prison that long. So he does something that is not normally done by the prosecutor. He changes the venue mm-hmm. to St. Augustine, which the townspeople have great things to say about. I knew he was in trouble when I saw that jury. And Bernie was just going to have to get up there and explain himself to a bunch of San Augustine cousin counting rednecks over there. I mean, they got more tattoos than teeth, and they ain't a brain in the whole dozen of them, and they're supposed to decide big things like this? I mean, shoot, I wouldn't let them work on my car. Once they're in San Augustine, none of these people know Bernie. And this is the time where the daughter gets on the stand and she's crying some crocodile tears, saying that she misses her grandmother so much, that they loved her so much. Mm -hmm. And that is where I'm calling bullshit, as we stated earlier. Like, I I just don't believe it. Then the jury convicts him and they sentence him to life. They sentence him to life this time. They play it well in the movie. And then in 48 Hours, Danny Buck touches on it, too. So he basically convinces this jury that they shouldn't like Bernie because he's this guy who, like, enjoys the high-class life. He thinks that, like, small-town life is not good enough for him. This lady took him all over the world, made him tell the jury about the difference between first-class seats and the regular seats on the airplane because Danny Buck's like, I've never been up there. Can you tell me about it? Um, And really just painting him as, like, this guy who thinks he's way better than them. And I think it worked. And in the 48 hours, Danny Buck just says simply that the jury did not relate to him and they related to me. And that was his tactic and it was successful. I wonder if a lot of what the script said, I wonder how much of that was actually from the trial itself and the transcript. Because mm-hmm. as as Matthew McConaughey, as Danny Buck was talking, I was like, can he, can he bring this in? Like, is this not objectionable? I wasn't sure. So help me out here, Bernie. On this trip with Mrs. Nugent to New York City, did you fly first class? Yes, I believe we did. Tell us the difference between like the, the first class seats and the regular old seats in the back of the plane. I, I I never been up there. He's really like riding on him about like being in a first class plane and stuff like that. Yeah, it's less about his character and more about his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. which was surprising. But in the end, they do sentence him. They give him life. We see Bernie in prison now. Now he's in prison. Being, he is still being visited by little old ladies. He's being visited by my favorite of the little old ladies, who is like... <laughs> well, I have to tell you what I've done. I wrote the warden a letter. Yes, I did. I told him that he had to give you a work release or something like that so that you could sing at my funeral. Now, I'm not sick or anything, but now, Bernie, you promised me that you would do that. And I told him you'd wear those little chains or whatever if it made them feel better. So. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's super sweet about it. And it's like, well, I wouldn't count on it. And he goes, he goes back into the prison. And that is kind of the, like, end of the movie. And then... You kind of see some on-screen text about what happened. You see that Marjorie is buried with her husband. You see that Danny Buck is still the DA. And then, and I loved this, and you see this in the 48 Hours too. you see 
the actual Bernie, you see that he runs Bible study courses, that he does a lot of crafts that he sends back to the people in Carthage. And he is sitting there talking with Jack Black, who starred as him through this whole movie. And he is like just it's like they're it's like they're not in prison. Like they are just having a cup of coffee and he is this like nice little man just talking to him. Mm-hmm. And that's how it ends. And so you kind of stop. I remember the first time I saw this movie and it ended and I was like, I was almost happy. Like I was I was sad, but then you see that image of him and how like joyous he is even in that moment in prison talking to Jack Black. And it was kind of like, mm-hmm. well, he's still got a nice life. Like he made the best out of the shittiest situation. Yeah, that's true. And it kind of ends on this weird high note. But <laughs> yeah. we are not done. We are not done. No. Okay. So I read a few articles that were responses, like local articles in Carthage and around mm-hmm. about what people thought of it. One of the articles I read, it had Danny Buck saying that it wasn't accurate. I kind of don't believe that. I just, I think Danny Buck was a little mad that he seemed a little, a little iffy as Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. It had the daughters in a freaking outrage saying that it absolutely was not how it was, that he is a monster. Their grandmother was mm-hmm. wonderful. And the granddaughters, they talk about how they think that, like, everyone involved in this movie, the director, Richard Linklater, Jack Black, everyone of them have been conned by Bernie, too. And to an extent, I kind of see it here and there. Like, I can't make up my mind if he actually is a con man. The lengths that Linklater goes for Bernie are pretty wild. They're extreme. At one of the screenings of Bernie, it ends, and this woman comes up to Linklater and says, I think I can help this guy. And who is this mm-hmm. lady? It's Jody Cole. It's this attorney. She thinks that there was a miscarriage of justice in his case, and she wants to appeal it and try to get him a new trial. She gathers all this information, the information that we have mentioned, but nobody knew up to this point, that Bernie mm-hmm. was abused, sexually abused. He had this horrible childhood, and all of this has come about. She has him examined by a psychologist, and basically what they come to, you're going to have to help me with this name, but it's... They said it was a dissociative episode. The moment got so overwhelming with Marjorie at the time that he killed her. His mind was not there. His body was doing things that he had no control of, like out-of-body experience type thing. That's what she's saying happened. To be totally honest, I don't totally buy it. And now I'm going to say what I think happened. Mm -hmm. I do think Marjorie, like I said earlier, was suffering from some dementia. I think it was getting really hard to deal with. I think she might have even at times gotten not violent but aggressive with him with how she was right and he was wrong. And I think also Marjorie probably was getting panicky at times because she was forgetting shit. Mm -hmm. I think that Bernie saw her suffering and saw it was getting worse and worse and worse. I think something happened, probably not even a big thing, but enough to where he couldn't, he could see it was not going to be much longer. She couldn't live like this type of thing. And I think either in a sudden passion moment or maybe even premeditated. I don't think it was premeditated to the point he'd been planning it for weeks. If I say premeditated, I mean a matter of minutes. I think he chose to shoot her because he could see that she was just not living a quality life anymore. That's what I think happened. See, I kind of am on the team where I could. I don't know if I see the whole dissociative episode. I see the act of passion, at least. Possibly the dissociative episode, but I feel like I'd have to know a lot more about his trauma. And like they were saying that like things she did kind of triggered him to feeling trapped as he did in that old relationship. 
that old abusive relationship, um, like the shutting of the gate and stuff like that. But just when they went around with those town people and just pointed out that there were like a billion better ways to kill her and he wasn't like a dumb guy. So that's where I'm like, I, I feel like if he, maybe it was just a couple minutes premeditated and that's what it was. But I did find it interesting in the movie. We think that Danny Buck is like so annoying the yes. whole time pretty much. Yes. So this is the next thing I was like, Danny Buck. Oh my God. I didn't think he yeah. would do this. I don't think I don't think today a prosecutor would do this. Like even if they knew that information before, I think they'd be like they well, wouldn't that, say that. They would say it's totally unrelated and they're not they're not going to care. Like they I don't think they'd care, but Danny Buck, what does Danny Buck do? So Danny Buck and the 48 hours say that says that when he saw the evidence that Jody Cole gathered about the childhood abuse and the abuse that Marjorie perpetrated against Bernie. I don't know how she gathered that, but that was supposed to be in there. He said that the max that he would have sought was 20 years for Bernie. Because it would have been something more of a crime of passion. It would not have been a premeditated mm-hmm. murder. So the max would have been a second degree felony. And he agrees with her. He does not fight this. She puts an appeal for a resentencing. He gets a resentencing trial. Now we should clarify what this means. In Texas, the way trials work, it's basically too many trials in one big trial. There's the guilt-innocence phase of the trial where you are looking at just the facts of what happened, the immediate facts surrounding what happened, and you determine, did they do it? Did they not do it? Are they guilty? Are they not guilty? If you find them guilty, you go to the next phase of trial, the sentencing phase. This is what Bernie is getting a resentencing hearing on. And basically what you can do there is you can bring in other facts. You can bring up character witnesses. You can bring up stuff about the defendant's past. And it can be considered for what kind of punishment would be adequate. And in this case, they are bringing it back down. They're going to a jury to have them determine whether or not he should be sentenced to up to 99 or life or up to 20. And that's what happens in a second trial. But we get new prosecutors. We don't get Danny Buck. Yeah. So Danny Buck, although agreeing with this, he recuses himself. Part of me is like, I feel like he was worried about elections. I feel like those vic- the quote-unquote victims, which would be the granddaughters and the son, were very mad at him. And he did not want to have to mess with that. So he, to be fair, slash not get not elected, he had someone else come in. He had uh, two other prosecutors take over. And they don't buy this dissociative episode thing <coughs> at no. all. These are my other two worst nightmare lawyers. <laughs> yeah, they so, reminded me of a lot of prosecutors. Jody Cole and then these prosecutors together <laughs> is my worst nightmare. It's two prosecutors that just want to freaking win because they're competitive as shit and they have no sympathy for anything. I don't even think they read any of the crap that Jody Cole probably brought to them. And then you got Jody Cole who wants to try everything. And it's just Clash of the Titans. Bolton gets anxiety and crawls under her bed. Like, oh, my God. So that's And we should note, they still have to move this out of Carthage because there's too many Bernie fans in Carthage. They can't do this resentencing in Carthage. So this one is moved. It's not San Augustine again, but it's it's somewhere else. Henderson, yeah. The new trials moved to Henderson because Bernie still has too many friends in Carthage. Yes. So these two ladies... Not gonna be. I'm gonna. I'm trying really hard not to like call them any. They're just doing their job, but they're doing it a little too harshly. <laughs> they go after him. They have like a star witness, and it's a psychologist that says that Bernie is a narcissist and that he knew exactly what he was doing. The other thing is, is they have three checks that were signed by Bernie. They were forged by Bernie to look like Marjorie signed them. And they also, so this is after the Bernie movie has come out. This is 2015, right? Right. 
And the movie came out in 2011. So these DAs paint Hollywood as the enemy too. Like, oh, this Hollywood movie come out. It's all these people who are taking advantage of innocent victims, all these Hollywood predators. And I really liked that the director, Linklater, was like, I took that personally. I am a small indie Texas director. Like, I'm not from He lives in Austin. (laughs) And I think he testified. And I think Hollingsworth did too. But unfortunately... God damn it. This broke my heart. This part, I was like, in the four, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is the last time I'm watching this. They find him guilty. They resentence him to life. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention. So the they put the uncle who Bernie says sexually abused him on the stand, and the uncle denies it, but the uncle admits that he wrote Bernie a letter sexual in nature. That's like, a lie. What the fuck? No, I don't believe that you didn't abuse him then. I'm sorry. Yeah, I... But apparently the jury's like, oh, he just sent a letter. (laughs) Or, oh, it didn't affect him long term. Like, I was just like, what? Who's on this jury? I don't understand. What's crazy to me is, you know, those prosecutors had to bring this man on. They had to have him testify. Basically, they brought on a child predator, had him testify, saying, I never did this. And the defense attorney had to come and basically play prosecutor, being like, so you never did this to a 12-year-old boy. He's claiming mm-hmm. this, and he's now old. Bernie is now old, still saying this happened. Like, bullshit. This is when shit... The justice system is very fucked up, yeah. and that is why I'm not there. I really respect people that work there. I just can't do it. It makes me too stressed. And then... I just have meltdowns. This is why I'm in therapy. (laughs) So anyway, Bernie is resentenced to life. He's still there. He is eligible for parole in 2029. Coming up. Coming up. (laughs) He'll be 70. Meanwhile, Jody Cole is actually appealing the resentencing. So we'll see what happens. And that, my friends, is the story and the movie Bernie. That was our first episode. How do you feel? Feel good. Do we want to tell people what our next movie will be if they want to watch? Yeah. So thank you so much, guys, for listening to our first episode. Our second episode is going to be on... What is it going to be on, Grace? The Bling Ring. The Bling Ring. Also, there's an E! reality show called Pretty Wild. There was only one season of it. It's featuring all these people that were involved. Grace has never seen it. It is like trash TV. I've actually never even seen this movie. This is going to be the first time I'm watching Bling Ring. Oh, okay. So we are going to be going over Bling Ring. We're going to go over the real story. I am definitely making Grace watch the show because it's so ridiculous. If you need some trash TV just to just scream at, please watch. I highly recommend it. Watch both. They're both great. I'm excited. And we will see y'all next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye.